This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato, broadcasting today from WFPL Studios in Louisville, Public Media in Louisville, Kentucky. The House Science Committee is acknowledging that climate change is a threat. But instead of curbing emissions, Committee Chairman Lamar Smith is interested in geoengineering. That means cooling the globe in other ways, like spraying sulfur dioxide in the stratosphere. We'll talk about climate modification and some of the scientific and political consequences a bit later in the hour. But first, men's soccer teams are jockeying for slots in the 2018 World Cup with Italy oh, failing to make the cut this week. Boy, they are heartbroken. The U.S. men's team is out of contention as well. The next Women's World Cup isn't uh, until 2019. But there, the current champion U.S. women stand a better chance. And new research shows that there may be another difference between men's and women's teams. And here to tell us about that and other selected short subjects in science is Sophie Bushwick, senior editor at Popular Science. Welcome back, Sophie. Thanks for having me. So tell us about this research that says that uh, heading a soccer ball might hurt women's brains more than men's. Right. So when you think about brain trauma, you tend we tend to think more about maybe, you know, football players as opposed to soccer players. But even though when a soccer player heads a ball, they're, they're not hitting it hard enough to get a concussion, they can still over time damage their brains. And uh, studies have found that in soccer players who head the ball a thousand times a year or more, they do see changes in their brains. And then a new study has looked at whether those changes are the same between male and female soccer players. So they looked at some amateur players Uh, 49 men and 49 women, and then they compared them, people with a similar age and a similar amount of times that they would head the ball. And they found that women tended to have damage to a greater uh, part of their brain and to more discrete areas of the brain than the men who headed the ball like the same amount. So this is is different from a, a concussion then? Yes, this is different. This is uh, called sub-concussive. It's not, it's hits that aren't hard enough to give you a concussion, but can still, over time, with repetition, yeah, change the makeup of your brain. Mm -hmm. Do they know why there's a difference here? There's a couple different theories. One is that, in general, women are uh, physically smaller and tend to have weaker necks than men, and so it could be that the same amount of force does more damage. But we're not sure yet. Another theory suggests that it could be something due to genetics or to hormones. Um, One thing we do know is that women are also more likely to get concussions. And when they do get concussions, it takes longer to recover. Hmm. Let's move on to a cheerier subject. (laughs) (laughs) And that is that that, uh, thousands of scientists have put humanity on notice. Again, I guess not that cheery. (laughs) A lot less cheery. Uh, So this is actually based on uh, an open letter that was written in 1992, 25 years ago, about uh, 1,700 scientists signed on to this letter saying, look, humans are damaging the environment. We are causing unsustainable changes. And if we don't stop soon, we'll pass the point of no return. And now 25 years later, 10 times as many scientists have signed on. So we've got about 16,000 scientists saying we are causing major damage. In the time since that original letter came out, the global climate has increased by uh, 0.5 degrees Celsius. Um, the We have more deforestation. We're having less access to clean water, clean fresh water. And in the oceans, there's um, fisheries are declining, which is a sign of overall ocean health. And Plus, we're losing biodiversity. So while we've got 2 billion more humans on the planet, we've got... Um, other, a lot of other vertebrates have declined by about 30%. Hmm. These, I imagine, are different topics than we're talking about uh, when the original petition was out there. What? 
Well, some 1992. Of, some of them are, are the same. So in 1992, there were still concerns about climate. Uh, there were concerns about deforestation, um, about lack of sustainability. Th- there is a bright spot, though. Um, so what, one thing that has changed is that the ozone hole has gotten a little bit smaller. So uh, s- it's currently at its smallest point since 1988 because we've been phasing out the chlorofluorocarbons, which um, used to be in air conditioners and refrigerators, and those were causing real ozone damage. So the fact is we can take action to mitigate some of these changes, but the question is, will we? Yeah, that is an interesting point you make, that uh, people are, you know, they say we can't do anything, but that shows that if we do take action, we can have an effect. Exactly. Yes. Wow. Yeah. And, And ozone, of course, is not as big a concern these days. We've got bigger fish to fry, unfortunately. <laughs> and the fish are frying. Uh, oh. Next next week, of course, is uh, is Thanksgiving. And while there's going to be lots of s- starches and turkeys, scientists have come up with some psychological tricks to make you eat your veggies. Right. So something like 90% of Americans don't get enough vegetables each day but because a lot of people don't like the taste. But there's psychological trickery you can use. So in one study, scientists put up, um, used peer pressure. They put up posters that said um, something like, most students at this facility like to have vegetables with their lunch. And just being exposed to that poster made students more likely to have vegetables with their lunch. Hmm. And so there's a... Social pressure there? Yeah, yeah. It could that could be there could be some social influence there, like encouraging people to eat vegetables if they think that their peers are. Yeah, yeah. And we we have found there. You're right. There's research that shows if your friends do something, that they, they may influence your way of looking at things. Also. Yes, and there's actually an even a slightly creepy additional technique you can use to get someone to eat their veggies, which is giving them a false memory from their childhood. <laughs> So <laughs> wait a minute, how does that work? <laughs> so we tend to be pretty suggest suggestible about memories. So if someone said to me, "Oh, Sophie, remember that time when you were little and we had asparagus for dinner and you were so happy and we had that amazing conversation?" And I, I part of me might be kind of unsure, but the fact that the other person is so confident about it could cause me to create this false memory, and I might really think that that had happened, and I could even maybe supply some details myself, like, "Oh yeah, I remember that was when we were." eating off those blue plates we used to have or something like that. Uh And by encouraging that kind of false memory, people who had warm and fuzzy vegetable memories tended to start eating more of that vegetable. Well, here's wishing you happy veggies on Thanksgiving, Sophie. Thanks. Thanks a lot, and happy Thanksgiving to you. Happy Thanksgiving. Uh, That's about all we have for Sophie. Sophie Bushwick is senior editor at Popular Science. Uh, Thanks again for being with us today. It's now time to check in on the state of science. This is KER St. Louis Public Radio Iowa Public Radio News. This is where we take a look at science happening in the states, and this week we're in uh, Kentucky, a state that gets more than 90% of its power from coal plants. But a fight's been brewing over what happens to the waste products from burning coal and how the state regulates it. Here with me is Erica Peterson, an assignment editor and former environmental reporter for Louisville Public uh, Media. She's been covering the story. Nice to have you. Thank you. Let's talk about uh, this story. Uh, What exactly is coal ash for people who don't know? 
what it is. Yeah, sure. Coal ash is also called coal combustion residuals. Sometimes it's basically what's left over when you burn coal for electricity. You know, there's a lot of stuff that goes up the stack, um, but more and more as more and more pollution controls are put on, more and more of it remains in coal ash. Um, and much like coal, this is stuff that's full of um, of toxic things like arsenic, selenium, lead, mercury, lots of nasty stuff. So where does it go then? Well, a lot of it, um, some of it is recycled, um, but for the most part, power plants store it and they store Hmm. it either in dry landfills or in wet ponds. And these are, you know, both cases, they're huge landfills that are like mountains or they're very large um, ponds. And this is, you know, has been a problem in the past because until the uh, federal law required um, certain things in 2015, there were no liners that had to be required. So there were some, um, at a lot of these sites, there were leaching problems where these chemicals were getting into Mm. groundwater or surface water. Mm -hmm. So uh, in Kentucky, there is uh, disagreement over some of the new regulations for how these disposals happen? Yeah, um, there, there's for the past year there's there's been this uh, this debate going on in Kentucky. The the federal coal ash regulations there are a lot different. A lot of environmental regulations, they're kind of more like um, like standards. They're mm. saying, um, we're suggesting, you know, these specifications. And states are um, are expected or urged to kind of incorporate those into their existing state standards. Um, so what Kentucky tried to do is, is rather than incorporate them into our existing regulations, they basically scrapped the existing regulations and um, is proposing to just incorporate these uh, these looser guidelines. Which um, has uh, annoyed some people who are who are concerned about this, because um, pretty much before, if you wanted to build a coal ash landfill, you had to do a whole bunch of stuff. There was a permitting program. You had to get um, you know state engineers to sign off on where you're going to monitor, where it's going to be built, all these specifications. And under the new proposal, what they would be allowed to do is um, basically go ahead and build it. And if there are any problems that the state or citizens discover after the fact, um, they can be sued for it, um, which you mm. know, it might be too late at that point. Um, so, yeah, so that also has has drawn a lawsuit. Um, and this is how Tom Fitzgerald, who's a prominent environmental attorney in Louisville, described it back in January. It's the Wild West, basically. You get to control the design, the construction, the operation, the closure, the post-closure. And the only time the state is going to become involved is after you screw up, if they find out about it. Ah, So where do we go from here? What what do you expect to happen? (laughs) Well, that lawsuit is um, is still pending. Fitzgerald and uh, the Kentucky Resources Council have have sued the state, and they're waiting on a judge to determine, you know, what's going to happen. So we, we can expect then looser regulations uh, 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 suspending, suspend, suspended pending the lawsuit, the outcome of the lawsuit. Mm-hmm. And this is a, this is something that you've been following for years, right? You've been an environmental reporter. Yeah, that. yeah, I have, and it's a it's a really big issue. And one of the reasons that I think um, Fitzgerald and other people are so concerned about this is it's not like Kentucky has done that great a job, um, you know, controlling pollution from these sites, you know, yeah. up until now. All right. So. Thank you very much for taking time to be with us today. Thanks a lot. Erica Peterson, assistant. uh, She's an assignment editor and former environmental reporter, as she says, for Louisville Public Media, who has been covering this story. And uh, we're going to take a break. And after we talk about all that burning coal, well, 
How is the planet warming? And instead of cutting emissions, the House Science Committee is interested in another idea, and that is geoengineering. We have talked a lot about geoengineering, what it is, what kinds of things to expect on geoengineering. And it's amazing that, uh, as one headliner wrote, the House Science Committee actually talked about science this time it met. We'll, we'll talk, about, uh, talk about it with people who are there after the break. Stay with us. We'll be right back. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. For the last three years, global carbon emissions were flat. They weren't decreasing, but at least they were not going up. But this year, that last bit of consolation may be gone. An international team of scientists announced last week that global carbon emissions are projected to go up by 2% in 2017. We're dumping much more carbon in the air this year. So what can be done? Well, try to discuss cutting back emissions and you devolve into an ugly political battle, as you may have heard. But, but if you don't get into the discussion about whether climate change is man-made, but attack it from the position of how to mitigate it, then it appears that a useful, political-free discussion can be had, like grabbing excess carbon in the atmosphere, storing it somewhere, somewhere harmlessly. Well, that's a possibility. How about spraying sulfur into the atmosphere? creating a, a chemical layer to reflect some sunlight back into this into space and sort of cooling the Earth down. All these techniques fall under something called geoengineering, a controversial set of tools that nonetheless has caught the attention of Congress, where one of Congress's greatest skeptics about climate change convened a hearing where they discussed the science of geoengineering. As the climate continues to change, geoengineering could become a tool to curb resulting impacts. Instead of forcing unworkable and costly government mandates on the American people, we should look to technology and innovation to lead the way to address climate change. That's Lamar Smith, the Republican who heads the House Science Committee at a hearing on geoengineering last week. And that's what we're going to be talking about uh, this hour, if you want to talk about it with us, our number is 844-724-8255. You can also, also tweet us at SciFry, S-C-I-F-R-I. Let me introduce my guests. Douglas McMartin is Senior Researcher of Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering at Cornell University in Ithaca, New York, and he testified at the House Science Committee hearing last week. Welcome to Science Friday. Hi, Ira. Thank you. Glad You're to welcome. Be here. Thank you. Holly Buck is a postdoctoral fellow at the Institute of Environment and Sustainability at uh, UCLA. Welcome to Science hey, Friday. Hey. Great to be with you. You're, you're welcome. Uh, Peter Kellerman is a professor of Earth and Environmental Sciences at Columbia University's Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory in Palisades, New York. Please, uh, welcome to Science Friday to you. Great. Thanks. Happy to talk with you. It's nice to have you. Uh, Douglas, uh, can you quickly explain geoengineering? How would you describe it to someone who's never heard of it? Uh, carefully. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, uh, you, usually the problem is that you need to start with a few sentences of, of caveats. So none of these, and, and the first caveat is simply to just be really clear up front, this shouldn't be thought of as a substitute for cutting our carbon emissions. It really should be so thought of as a couple of options that we might consider to add on top of that. And basically falls into two broad categories. One is basically pulling carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, uh, so CDR for carbon dioxide removal. And the other is basically ideas that would reflect some sunlight away from the planet. So if CO2 warms the planet, if I reflect a little bit of sunlight away, that's going to cool the planet uh, and keep the changes from getting worse. 
Mm-hmm. Now, you I, you were present at the House Science Committee hearing. You were an expert witness. What was it like being there? Uh, I mean, it's a fun experience. I think the, the thing that's most surprising to me was I was sort of going in, you know, trying to practice all of my how do I respond to uh, climate skeptics, mm-hmm. and there wasn't any of that. So it was actually remarkably bipartisan and remarkably positive in the sense that the questions were generally pretty good. Everybody was very curious uh, and just trying to actually understand the science and, and how are we supposed to think about this. So so you were able to talk about mitigating climate change without having to have them admit there was climate change? I think they did actually effectively admit that there was climate change. And I think the key thing is that as soon as you... If, if you talk about regulating carbon dioxide, regulating fossil fuels and cutting our emissions, then you immediately get into political, practically mm. political warfare. This has been highly politicized. But if you take that part out and you just talk about the science, then you get a remarkably bipartisan discussion. So you actually, that quote that you gave from Lamar Smith, he did use the word instead, uh, which is a word that I would clearly disagree with. Uh, I don't think that you can use these techniques as an alternative to um, cutting mm-hmm. your emissions, but more that it's unclear that cutting emissions is going to be good enough. I hear, I hear you, Holly. You uh, you've been following the hearings. What what did you think of them? You know, I, I agree with Doug's assessment that it was generally uh, more positive than at least I expected. Um, I think hearings can be a funny kind of theater. I think you need to take this one in the context of other hearings that have been on this topic. Um, the messages were rather similar, but the the context is so different now um, with an administration that wants to pull out of the Paris Agreement. Um, did, did, so, you, did, did, did you find it ironic that it was happening at the same time as the bond meeting, the international meeting in bond was going on? Yeah, I... I suspect that was somewhat intentional. Um, I also think that it's interesting that geoengineering is something that you don't have to talk about the human side of the the problem. As um, Senator Inhofe, who you might remember from the famous snowball incident, asked at a hearing back in 2007 where geoengineering came up, he said his question was, does geoengineering make sense even if global warming is a natural phenomenon? So they were kind of framing it um, as a way to escape that part of the discussion. Mm-hmm. Peter Kellum, let's get into a little bit of the nitty-gritty of uh, some of the science and technology here. I know that you study uh, carbon capture, one method that could be used for geoengineering. Um, tell us what that is, and, and what do you make of uh, congressional attention to this now? Well, let's take that in two parts. So uh, in a nutshell, uh, I'm studying the weathering process of rocks from the Earth's interior, the mantle, and there are some places where the mantle is pushed up toward the surface by uh, plate tectonics and then exposed by faults and erosion. And uh, the mantle is very far from equilibrium with the atmosphere and, and the ocean. And so that creates a huge chemical potential, kind of like a big battery, that drives uh, carbon dioxide uptake from air to form solid carbonate minerals. And so this natural process is very widespread, and uh, it's possible that we could come up with ways to accelerate it considerably in order to remove CO2 from air at a level that would matter uh, compared to human emissions. 
so that's the science side in brief. Uh, how do I feel about it? I feel that um, it's a big mistake to view this kind of thing as a get-out-of-jail-free card, that um, it would be immensely less expensive and more practical to switch to a low-carbon energy economy uh, via renewable uh, energy sources. And um, so just to give you an idea of the scale, uh, to remove, if let's say we overshoot a sustainable carbon dioxide concentration in the atmosphere by uh, 100 ppm, so 20% of the current carbon content, that to get back to uh, withdraw 100 ppm from the atmosphere requires removal of uh, 1.8 trillion tons of carbon dioxide because you have to take it not only from the air but also from the surface ocean. And uh, that's just an enormous amount. So at $50 a ton, that corresponds to $90 trillion uh, to remove it. Uh, if we did that over 30 years, it would be 3 to 4% of global GDP. So it's just an enormous task, and uh, it would be far better to avoid that. Hmm. Uh, and Douglas McMartin, I, I know that instead uh, you look at the sky, geoengineering involving particles in the atmosphere and clouds, and, and that was something that had been suggested or at least talked about at the committee hearings, correct, as a way to reflect the sunlight. Yeah, so that's the, the things that Peter just talked about, and there's a variety of ideas in that category in some sense, there's no climate risk. There, you're you're solving the problem directly by by taking the CO2 out, and the issues there, as Peter said, they're basically their cost, their scalability, um, and then for some of the ideas that's discussed, then there's potentially significant local issues, uh, competition with food crops or things like that. The uh, ideas for reflecting sunlight, there's two main ones. The one that we know with absolute certainty would work in the sense of cooling the planet is just by observing every time you get a very large volcanic eruption, uh, and there's another one that may be going off soon in Indonesia, the, a volcanic eruption puts large amounts of sulfate into the stratosphere, and that cools the planet for a year or two. And so the idea would, roughly speaking, be uh, directly put that material in the stratosphere ourselves, where it would reflect sunlight away, and that would cool the planet. Um, two, uh, so the stratosphere, just uh, for context, is significantly higher than where aircraft fly. And all of our life, we live in the troposphere, which is well mixed. If you put pollution in the troposphere, it rains out within a week or two. But if you get high enough in the atmosphere, you can put material there, and it basically just stays there for a year or two before it comes down. So you don't have to put very much in. The problem basically is, well, there's a number of problems. Uh, one is that uh, if you add CO2 to the atmosphere and warm the planet, and then you cool it by reflecting sunlight away, that doesn't affect the climate the same way. So if you look at it as for a given amount of CO2 in the atmosphere, would some amount of solar geoengineering help? The answer is maybe. It would certainly make bring the temperatures down and so that might be important for protecting ice sheets, avoiding heat waves, all of the impacts that you're used to thinking about in terms of climate change. But if you ask the question, is it better to cut the carbon emissions or to do solar, some sort of solar geoengineering, that answer is pretty easy. Um, 
that it's much, much less risk to just cut the carbon emissions. So, the, so I mentioned the um, stratospheric aerosols. The other suggestion that's been made is a little bit more uncertain. Uh, <laughs> I guess that made sense, uh, which is trying to make clouds brighter. So if you go over the ocean where you have low-lying clouds quite often, uh, and you basically spray salt water into the clouds. The water evaporates, you get little tiny droplets of salt, and uh, the, that forms more condensation nuclei for the clouds, and in principle the clouds then are brighter and reflect more sunlight away. So that's, an, that's another idea that could potentially work to keep the planet cooler. But these are, uh, I guess, to, to do these things with the, with the atmosphere and the reflectivity op option. We're doing a giant experiment on ourselves, aren't we, Holly? I mean, we have no idea how, what the outcome of these things are going to be. Yeah, I'm, I'm concerned that there's not enough ecological research on this topic, um, how it would impact biodiversity and non-human life, because we don't know if it could help to save species or worsen the extinction crisis. You have um, a different type of light coming down, more diffuse light. You have new precipitation patterns, and on top of that, high CO2 concentration. So that's ecologically a novel environment. Mm -hmm. I'm Ira Flato. This is Science Friday from PRI, Public Radio International, talking about uh, the environment and the hearings and possible mitigation by geoengineering, uh, coming to you from uh, Louisville Public Media. Uh, uh, Holly, tell us about the, the social impact of this. I mean, people, I remember years ago, I went to Florida and I covered cloud seeding. I mean, we're talking a long time ago, over three decades ago, and experiments about whether you could get it to rain by going up and spraying silver iodide by planes through clouds. And they, they conducted the experiments, but then sort of stopped them. And I asked why, I asked one of the scientists why they stopped them. And they said, well, we don't know what the impact's going to be. We don't know if it's going to rain more here or more there. Or who Basically, who's you know, who, who's going to get gored by this? So is that is that part of what you're afraid of? Well, one part of the social side is the, the impacts on people and human systems. And the other part of the social side is how can citizens be involved upstream in the research and design of these technologies rather than just getting impacted by them after they're developed. Um, mm -hmm. In terms of public perception, there have been about 30 empirical studies um, and I'd say the one thing we know is that most people have no knowledge about this. Um, probably about 10% of people have heard about it, which is really not enough for uh, a good discussion. Mm -hmm. uh, do you feel like there isn't enough awareness about geoengineering? Is that what you're saying? We need to, to talk more about it? Can you give us, give us an example? Have, uh, or, or Do we know what people think about it? We know that... Um, Increased concern about climate change uh, correlates with increased interest in learning more about solar geoengineering. Um, but there's a big difference between supporting research and supporting actually doing it. A lot of people are supportive of, of research just because they think science in general is interesting and, and that things should be found out about. Um, I'd say that people have remarkably similar concerns if you look at results from focus group discussions about whether we can control this, what are the side effects, and what are the unknown unknowns. Mm -hmm. Let's see if I can uh, get, a, get a call in here before, uh, before we have to go. Let's go to uh, Joe in Gainesville, Florida. Hi, Joe. Hi, Ira. Say, if, if we sequester the carbon, 
in underground, let's say, or wherever, what will happen in the future if by chance through a seismic event or any other uh, uh, natural occurrence, what will happen to the carbon? A good question. Well, good. Yeah. Well, good, good. let me respond to that. So uh, if we were to convert CO2 to solid carbonate minerals, that's essentially uh, permanent because you're, you're making the CO2 into limestone or marble. And uh, on a human time scale, that, that lasts forever. It, it wouldn't be released by uh, earthquakes or any other process. Mm-hmm. Is it possible to sequester it on, in the oceans? I've, you know, we've heard talk about you can bring the carbon dioxide down into the oceans. It'll sort of turn into rock down there. Uh, there are several options that have been proposed. Those, uh, the, probably the most benign is to add uh, calcium or magnesium to the ocean, and then that will draw CO2 from the air and also act to mitigate ocean acidification. Um, right now, uh, because of uh, the International Convention on Dumping in the Oceans, it, that is kind of a no-go. But um, all of these different uh, proposed techniques have regulatory hurdles and uh, environmental downsides. So and until people get really concerned about this problem, we're going to be doing research, but we're probably not going to implement any of these things at scale. All right, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, uh, more on engineering the climate. Uh, you can you can give us a call. You can also you can tweet us, at SciFry, S-C-I-F-R-I. We'll be right back after this break. Stay with us. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. We're talking about the geoengineering and why the House Science Committee is interested in this solution as an alternative to cutting greenhouse gas emissions. Talking with my guests, uh, Douglas McMartin, senior researcher at Cornell University, Holly Buck, postdoctoral fellow at uh, UCLA, Peter Kellerman, professor of Earth and Environmental Sciences at uh, Columbia University's Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory in Palisades, uh, New York. Also, you can tweet us at SciFry, S-C-I-F-R-I, and also uh, we're taking your calls at our usual number. Uh, let me uh, uh, tweet. There's some interesting tweets that are coming in about um, unintended consequences. Maybe I'll, I'll ask this uh, for, to you, Douglas. Uh, people are saying if you're going to reflect the sunlight and cool the earth that way, what about the plants that need sunlight for photosynthesis? Is that going to cut down on what they need? Uh, well, the short answer would be yes, but you don't have to reflect very much sunlight. So if you wanted to, uh, well, so, f- so for context, the Paris Agreement, for instance, said we should make sure we stay below two degree global mean temperature rise above pre-industrial, that's Celsius, uh, and really try to stay above one and a half degrees, below one and a half degrees. But we're likely, the the promises that were made as part of the Paris Agreement are going to put us probably closer to a three-degree warming. So you've got Mm. at least one, one one-and-a-half degree greater temperature than what the general consensus is is safe for the climate Mm -hmm. and recognizing that we don't actually know what's safe. If you wanted to reduce the temperature by about one-and-a-half degrees Celsius, you need to reflect about 1% of the sunlight back to space. So the total amount of sunlight you're reflecting isn't very much. Holly mentioned this increase in the diffuse light. So it is true that uh, you know, we talk about doing that you could do this with sulfate, uh, mainly because that's what volcanoes do. And so we know that sulfate occurs naturally in the stratosphere from time to time. Uh, sulfate's not actually a very good backscatterer. 
So to reflect 1% of the light back to space, you actually scatter a fair amount of light. And so you actually, the, the sun would be a little bit dimmer and the rest of the sky would be a little bit brighter. And the short answer is mm-hmm. we don't know what the impacts of that would be on plants. I, I think you could write down actually quite a long list of things yeah. that we don't know. <laughs> um, this is really you, you uh, that's mentioned why, the idea that's of conducting a giant experiment. <laughs> yeah. Are we not doing that? Yeah, well, we're doing that right now. That's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> I see. Just trying to change the experiment. All right, let's go to the go to the phones. Let's go to Amy in Manhattan, New York. Hi, Amy. Welcome to Science Friday. Hi, thank you. Um, I think you maybe touched on this a little before, um, that, that this uh, method would uh, can reduce temperature, but it, by itself it wouldn't uh, actually reduce carbon emissions. And I'm thinking about the effect that would have in the ocean. Uh, someone mentioned acidification. And uh, I'm thinking of what that would do to the to coral reefs and uh, all the life that depends on them. Good question. So would, could they be addressed separately, or, or how would that work? Uh, Doug, Holly, Peter, well, you know, you, the ocean is acidifying. Well, so I'll jump in here. Uh, so it's a big problem. And, in fact, uh, there have been some modeling studies. Uh, again, everything's very uncertain. But there have been some modeling studies where if you – uh, use solar radiation management for uh, a decade or two, and then you stopped for some reason, um, the chances are that uh, in addition to the ocean acidification that would accumulate over that time, the temperature would rise very rapidly to the level that it would have had if you hadn't been reflecting sunlight. Mm-hmm. And so at best, I think uh, solar radiation management provides a stopgap uh, during which time interval you could try to remove carbon dioxide from air. Otherwise, you're stuck with doing it forever. Let me uh, get back to a point that was made at the beginning, and and the science committee was trying to concentrate on the costs involved in in, uh, mitigating or, or, or not mitigating. Give us an idea. You, you touched on it briefly. Give us an idea of how expensive doing these things would be compared to an expense of just reducing carbon emissions. Who'd like to tackle that? Well, I, I mentioned okay. some dollar amounts for carbon dioxide removal from air, and uh, it's fairly expensive. As I said, uh, if we amortized removing 100 ppm of CO2 from the atmosphere over 30 years, it would correspond to about 3% of GDP uh, globally, which is a lot. But I, you should look at that against the background of, uh, in large metropolitan areas, we currently spend about two percent of GDP just handling human waste and so and no one thinks that money is misspent so uh, when the day arrives when people think that putting carbon dioxide in the air is like throwing poop in the street then three uh, percent of GDP might not seem like very much money and until then um, it'll be uh, viewed as an expensive uh, thing to do mm-hmm. I can uh, you, jump in just yeah, a little bit with the costs on the on the the solar geoengineering stuff. Cost is it's effectively free. It doesn't actually matter what the cost is because all of the issues with it are the things other than the cost. They're all of the risks and the impacts and things. Hmm. And and who's going to uh, share the costs? How do you split up this as a, it's an international a worldwide problem? Well, what I'd like to add is I don't think that some members of the House Science Committee understood that solar geoengineering comes with both carbon removal and mitigation as part of the package. Um, because as was just mentioned, 
unless you do the carbon removal, you're stuck with the solar geoengineering indefinitely, and you risk that termination shock if it gets interrupted. So the cost of carbon removal are going to be the probably the biggest part of it. And then carbon removal in turn implies large amounts of mitigation because all of the ways we know to remove carbon are very energy intensive. So they need to be powered by renewables um, in order to actually be negative. Mm-hmm. You were, uh, Holly, you were just at the Climate Engineering Conference last month in Berlin where the world's top experts in geoengineering were gathering. And the one thing the conference has been criticized for is how few women experts were invited. You've written about this issue before. Who's doing the science and who will be affected by it? Yeah, I, I think that um, in some sense it faces the, the problem of STEM science more generally, and um, science technologies. How can we get more women involved in the field? But I also think this is um, a little bit special because there's kind of a narrative of masculine attempts to control the, the climate as a backdrop. And scientists are largely the ones framing this idea who give voice to it. So I did a study some years ago where I counted the statements in the press made by women, and just 3% of them were by women. So it has been, you know, men articulating this concept and what it means. That's Mm -hmm. one issue. Then there's the issue of whom it impacts and benefits. And then there's an issue about participation and decision-making and and Mm -hmm. goal-setting. Now, this is not the first time that uh, Congress has talked about geoengineering, Doug, is it? No, there was a hearing, I think it was almost exactly eight years earlier to the day. Uh, So I think it was 2009. There was a, uh, and in fact, if you actually go back, the first time that a president was briefed on climate change was uh, Lyndon Johnson in 1965. uh, And geoengineering actually was mentioned in that discussion as well. Wow. So... Can't be accused of not talking about this, you know, a while ago and thinking about it. Uh, but so I, uh, and to Holly's point about about using these things in concert, I I tried to tell them that in the in the hearing. <laughs> I'm not sure they got it. But 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 the, the, you made a major point before is that uh, the hearing was predicated on the idea uh, that you could geoengineer your way out of the problem. And, you know, the high-tech solution and what I hear all of you saying today is that you can't do that. This has to be one part of the solution that goes along with reducing carbon emissions. Would that be a correct summation? Absolutely. Yeah. All right. I want to thank you all for taking. That's a good way to end it. Uh, Time to talk with us. Douglas McMartin, senior researcher at Cornell University in Ithaca, Holly Buck, postdoctoral fellow UCLA, Peter Kellerman, Professor of Earth and Environmental Sciences at Columbia's Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory in Palisades, New York. Thank you all for taking time to be with us. Why is it that we can use modern medicine to conduct something as complicated as a face transplant, and yet we still don't know some basic stuff about human anatomy, for example? the veins and the capillaries that make up the vascular system. Doctors only have a rough sense of where those even are. And if it's true for humans, it's certainly true for animals as well. My next guest is a bird surgeon who became frustrated by the fact that he didn't have a better vascular map of the animals he treated. So he created a product, like a a special contract fluid, that would do just that. It's the subject of our latest macroscope video. 
Joining me now is Scott Eccles, bird veterinarian and researcher and president of Scarlet Imaging LLC. Scott, welcome to Science Friday. Hi, Ira. Welcome. Uh, thank you for having me on the show. Oh, you're very welcome. You know, it, it, it's strange to me that we don't know where all the blood vessels are in the body. It, was it that surprising to you? Yes, and it's become even more surprising over time as I have talked with anatomists, surgeons, and I'm talking about the human side, not just the veterinary side. And yes, it is. It's very surprising. Uh, you know, when you have someone who is, say, a specialist like a hand surgeon, and they tell you, I don't actually know where those blood vessels are. I know the big, the big ones. Oh my goodness. And that kind of makes me concerned, you know? It's, <laughs> that reminds me, and I do surgery, of course. It reminds me of kind of a hunt and peck mesh mission where you, you, know, you go where you think you know things are, but you're not quite sure. Now let's talk about how you came at this problem as a bird veterinarian and a surgeon, as you say. Why did you want such an accurate vascular map of, of a bird's body? Well, for one thing, I do a lot of uh, surgeries, and not just on birds, on other animals as well. And I also teach. So when I'm at a conference and I'm teaching someone how to do these surgeries, it's literally like, well, I say, you're going to see some stuff here. We don't know what it's called. Move that aside. And there's some vessels there. We don't know what those are. Move this, this way. And there's that thing underneath that you're going after. And, you know, that's a really crude way to teach. You couldn't certainly write it down in an organized manner. So what I end up doing is I, taking, I take video of a lot of my surgeries, and then I teach using the video. Hmm. And that's great. However, I really wanted to name those structures. I wanted to be able to put it in print and say, all right, if you're going to do this surgery, here's exactly what you're going to look for. And the reality is we just didn't have that information right. at the time. And this was just a few years ago. This is Science Friday from PRI Public Radio International. Talking with uh, Scott Eccles, uh, president of Scarlet Imaging. So rather than just sitting there and saying, you know, cursing the darkness... You went ahead and found a way of making great images using a special concoction of your own to, to, to inject into the birds and get great images. Tell us about that. Yes. Well, there's a little story here. I, I did actually try a number of the products that were currently on the market, and I was quite frustrated. Either the, um, the density was not high enough that I, I just really couldn't get the image quality that I wanted, or the, what I found out later, a lot of the products were exceedingly toxic. And a quick story, I was working with a student of mine, and we were injecting one of these compounds into an animal, and the stuff literally exploded in front of us. And it sprayed all over her. She flew backwards, and we still, to the date, in the lab, have an outline of her body on the wall where this stuff sprayed around her. And it always bothered me, what's in this? Because the company won't tell you. Well, ultimately, we found out it's a mixture of lead, mercury, and cadmium. And I thought, surely, we can do better than this. And it was very difficult to work with. It was expensive, on and on. So I said, there's got to be a way to make this better. And I literally started in my kitchen. And right next to where we prepare food, I said, first of all, this thing has to be safe, whatever it is. And uh, I wanted to make sure it was completely non-toxic. And I just started there. And that's literally how it began. And so you, it must have taken hours of experimenting to come up with what you wanted. Many, many hours, yes. Many hours. <laughs> and, and so you came up with— A lot of trial the, and error. A lot of trial. So you came up with your own mixture that I guess is a trade secret at this point, right? Of, uh, yes, of, of, uh, and so you take the mixture, you take this liquid, it's water-based, is it not? Yes, 
And you do what with so it? So we to mix get it the... in water. It starts as a. Right. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Tell us what you do with it and how you get the images. Oh. So it's it's a powder that we mix with water. We can also add in food coloring or fluorescein dye or some uh, preservatives, and then we uh, we mix it up hot and then we inject it into the vascular system of the animals. And as it cools, it solidifies. So this is a terminal agent. We do not use this on live animals. And then once it's solidified within the body, it allows us to get three um, D images using CT technology. So we're able to scan the animal or individual organs if we like, and we can get that. Um, essentially, we're not damaging the tissue because we haven't changed it. We're just injecting fluid into where the blood was. We're replacing it with the bright view, right. and then we CT scan it. So it gives us these beautiful images. And the very first image, maybe you've seen the uh, gray parrot. That's the one where I said, that's it. That's what I want to yeah. see, and this is where I want to go. Not only are the images wonderful, and actually I should mention it's our latest macroscope video at sciencefriday.com slash blood. You can go see these images at uh, sciencefriday.com slash blood. But you actually get to see the capillaries, right, which people haven't seen before in great detail. Yes, and, and you know what's fun about this. I mean, it's literally like going on a discovery mission every day because depending on the level you want to go down to, you see new things. And it, it reminds me, it takes me back to those old anatomy and histology books. You know, going to veterinary school, we learned about all these structures. And you see these images and you think, oh, that's interesting. You know, how did they even guess what this was? Well, the reality is those images don't quite match up with what we're seeing. So this has the potential to really rewrite that information and help people understand in three dimensions what these structures look like. And for example, I bring up the glomeruli of the capillaries beds of the kidneys. We can actually see that, how they're oriented, and, and, and we can even put them in a 3D VR system and go through that wow. kidney and look at it. And it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing to me. As I say, uh, you can see Dr. Eccles' images of hidden anatomy. It's our latest macroscope video at sciencefriday.com slash blood. While there, you can also manipulate and you could download 3D models of the blood vessels inside a rattlesnake, a human head, and then take a journey through a snake's body. This, this is so amazing. Uh, that's at sciencefriday.com slash blood. Thank you very much, Dr. Eccles, for taking time to be with us today. Uh, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. You're welcome, Scott Ecclesbird, veterinarian, researcher, and president of Scarlet Imaging, LLC. Charles Berkowitz is our director, senior producer, Christopher Taliata. Our producers are Alexa Lim, Christy Taylor, Katie Heiler. Our intern is Sashmita Paddock. And we had technical and engineering help today from Rich Kim, Sarah Fishman, and Jack Horowitz. And a big thanks to John Grant and everyone at uh, Louisville Public Media for welcoming us uh, to their studios and home this week. That's where we're broadcasting from. And, of course, we're active all week on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all the social media. And you can listen to us anytime on Amazon Echo and Google Home. In Louisville, I'm Ira Flato.